These are the confessions of American Christians recovering from American Christianity. This is the world we made. I'm here with Pastor Jacob Menzel. And I'm here with Nathan Alberson. That's me. The world we made was designed to help you apply one of my favorite verses of the Bible, Proverbs 4, 7a. The beginning of wisdom is, get wisdom. Or in the dulcet tones of the King James, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And this is part two of our series, Seeking God's Wisdom on the Subject of Homosexuality, specifically how best to love homosexuals. Last time we began a discussion with Pastor Tim Bailey regarding said subject. Tim went back to the 60s and 70s and told us about his experiences hitchhiking across the country, being picked up by gay men, his experiences in San Diego when he was paired with a male prostitute as a roommate. Yeah, you, you don't want to miss that episode. It is available, Jake, wherever fine podcasts are downloadable. We We also reminded everybody that as late as 1962, every one of the states in this country had felony laws against sodomy. Yeah, it was a different world back then, which leads invariably to the profoundly deep and philosophic question of what happened? In less than the lifetime of one man, we've gone from sodomy being a felony crime to transgender bathrooms being a thing. How did the world change so fast, Jake? It does that. Yeah, it actually does. I mean, we have the idea that there's this static thing called like the present or the culture or the way things are today. Like we're, we're shipwrecked on an island called the world we live in today where we bide our time with the past and future, both dim horizons on the wine dark sea. But the fact is, if time is an ocean, we're all caught in it, and the currents are always pulling us towards one shore or another. The world that we live in, the culture, this present age, whatever you want to call it, it's always changing, it's always in play. Yeah, if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, and you should, you know he makes a convincing case that social change is fast. Under the right conditions, it can spread like wildfire or the plague. And if you've read your Bible, you know that under the judges and later the kings, the people of Israel would go from worshiping God to worshiping Baal and then back again all in the space of a generation or two. In the 20th century, the world went from peace to world war to peace, back to world war again, all in the space of one generation. Yeah, I mean, think about the 20th century in general. Think about the differences between the 10s and the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. When I name those decades and you think about what each decade represents, you realize I just named like nine different worlds with different rulers, different entertainers, different wars and inventions and problems and moral questions. Society really can change as fast as a new backdrop falling into play. So it shouldn't surprise you that our world is very different from that of just 50 years ago. Of course it is. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The more they change, the more so on and so forth. But that still doesn't answer the question of why in this case things changed. So that was our next question for Tim. What's behind the rise of homosexuality in our modern culture? What happened? Before we get to Tim, though, you got any theories about that, Jake? Well... Because I actually have several theories. Oh. Okay. Because I, I, you know, I went for a walk. I, I, I did some thinking mm-hmm. about it, and I looked deep That's inside good. my heart, and, and I realized, you know, it, it, it's me. Oh, I. Dia. See. Oh. The, the mainstream media, Jake. Oh, the media. Oh, oh. 
or as I like to call them, the lamestream media. Uh, you know, lame rhymes with main and at more accurately describes what they are. It's and um, and they're you know they've got their pals out in Holly Weird, uh-huh. as I like to call it. Uh-huh. Always always trying to shovel filth and 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 and, and bring down the moral. Uh, Uproot the moral foundations. Uproot the moral foundations and deteriorate the the moral fiber of our country. And uh, you've got Washington, D.C. Might as well stand for Washington doesn't care about traditional family values. Am I right, Jake? Uh, Really pretty much one big conspiracy by the gay, lesbian, by Illuminati. I should be tweeting this. Yeah, well, uh, that's an interesting theory. Why don't... Well, it is interesting, and you had a very compelling way of putting it, but why don't we just listen to what Tim has to say? You should listen to... Yeah, I think we... All right. Let's just listen what Tim has to say. What is the major change that you've seen and who caused it and why? Well, I'm not sure that anybody can say who caused it or what caused it. You know, a lot of people would say that the 60s just overthrew all the rules, but I'm reading a long, long history of England right now. Tim's always reading a long, long history of something. It's called The English, and I think that's what it's called, either England or The English. You know, you read through the centuries, and there's this constant mention of every kind of sexual immorality. I'm not convinced that we have a whole bunch more uh, sodomy and lesbianism today than we had a couple centuries ago. To put what Tim's saying in perspective, the number of people in the U.S. who identify as gay, lesbian, or bi was less than 3% in 2014, per the National Health Interview Survey conducted by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You'll hear the number 10% or 20% tossed around a lot. And statistics are blunt tools at best. And statistics are blunt tools at best, but most credible reports put the number at under 3%. We bring that up because if you get your information from just watching sitcoms and, you know, programs on the lamestream media, you'd assume the number was maybe closer to like 30 or 40 percent. And so when Tim said maybe nothing's changed, you'd think he was nuts, since obviously the number wasn't always 30 or 40 percent. But if it's really closer to 3 percent, then it's not so hard to believe that it's always been somewhere around 3 percent. Of course, the historical documentation just isn't there to really prove anything definitively one way or another about the past. But the point is, if you read your history, you know that at all times, in all places, there's always been a tiny portion of the population tempted by same-sex stuff. Yeah, nothing's different now. Nothing's different now. Okay, but something's different. Yes, something's different. What is different is it is unbelievably brash, unbelievably shameless, and it absolutely demands that everyone repent of in any way contributing to the shame of anyone for committing this perversion. In other words, the real issue today is the destruction of shame. The issue is not that everybody is all of a sudden having homosexual sex. The numbers are still microscopic. The issue is that homosexuals have been very effective in demanding that there be a a certain cachet associated with the deviant things that they do with each other. And so they've been successful. I remember 20 years ago, my friend Susie, who taught in a public high school in the suburbs of Chicago, saying that that the hip people in the school at that time were the ones that were gay, that they had, you know, they were chic, they were hipsters, if, if you would think of it that way. They were the ones that everybody looked up to as cool. It was in to be gay. And this was 20 years ago in the public high schools in the poor suburbs of Chicago. Now, Jake, you went to high school in Evansville, Indiana. Was it uh, in and cool and hip to be gay there? No, 
Not really. Okay, so what Tim's talking about has been a long process, and it hasn't been the same everywhere, but the point remains. So I'm not sure that anything has changed in terms of how many people do this, that, and the other thing. I mean, for sure, there are more people committing homosexual sin, more people committing incest. How did the brashness come about? Was there... Did someone design it? Was there an architect? Was there a conspiracy? Or was it just people giving into it over time or the church or what What happened? The first answer is the church. The church refused to discipline fornication. And I mean every church in the country. You mean regular boring old I mean, when the children of the church began to have sex with each other, and when I say have sex, I'm not being a Bill Clinton hypocrite. I mean that if you're touching a part of somebody's body that you don't have, that's sex. And the church just got shot through with petting. You had Lewis Smeads out at Fuller Seminary. Lewis Smeads? Who the heck is Lewis Smeads? Per Wikipedia, Louis Benedictus Smeads was a renowned Christian author, ethicist, and theologian in the Reformed tradition. He was a professor of theology and ethics for 25 years at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Louis Smeads' book, Sex for Christians, came out in 1976. Quote, Petting can be a delicately tuned means of mutual discovery. It need not be a cheap way of having the thrills of starting out toward intercourse without the daring do. Petting can be an end in itself. Very nice. I assume that's from Cosmopolitan's July issue? It's actually from Lewis Smead's book, Sex for Christians. Smeads continues, quote, Petting is a halfway house between shunning all physical expressions on the one hand and rushing swiftly toward intercourse on the other. So petting is the you may have one cookie before dinner of sexual morality. Uh, You got any uh, problem with that, Pastor Menzel? Yeah, yeah, I do have a problem with that. What's your problem? (laughs) It's really stupid. It's also wicked. Okay. Because, all right, fine. Petting is not intercourse. I agree. Petting is not intercourse. But it's the whole point is that it's meant to arouse you. It's motivated by lust and a desire for something that's forbidden. It's foreplay. It's headed somewhere. And at the end of the day, you are sowing to the flesh and you're going to reap corruption or you're sowing to the spirit and you're going to reap life. So if I'm dating a woman... Wait, you dating a woman? Okay. Go yeah, ahead. Go yeah. on. Okay. Go on. Just see if you can wrap your head around this <laughs> hypothetical situation here. If I'm dating a woman, uh-huh. are you saying I shouldn't nurture a deeper? relationship or that like sexual attraction is wrong? No, of course not. It's good. But it's all about context. And marriage is the only context for sex, period. End of discussion. And everything that you do that pushes you down that road that is motivated by lust, that's motivated by sexual expression outside of the context of marriage is wrong. It's sinful. Jesus says if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, it's sin. It's the same as committing adultery. And so petting, I don't even understand why we have to have the conversation. So is it Safe to say that you do not agree with Lewis Means on the subject of petting? Yes, safe to say. So what does any of that have to do with homosexuality? Why don't you ask Tim? I did. Let's listen. I just think this is sterile, the norm at Christian colleges and in Christian churches, that, that the children of the church engage in petting as a way of putting off getting pregnant, having children, and having to get married. You know, we have in this church a married couple where, you know, the, the daughter's dad was a church officer in a conservative church, and, and the man basically said to his daughter, do what you have to do. He wanted her to get a good degree and get established in a good profession. He knew that she loved uh, her boyfriend. Uh, he was basically telling her, go ahead and have sex, but just don't get pregnant. When conservative Baptists, Presbyterians, Bible church people, when the pastors and the elders don't discipline the youth of the church, their own children, 
There's absolutely no question that that church is going to be filled with every kind of sexual sin. It's going to have adultery. It's going to have unbiblical divorce and remarriage. It's going to have incest. You cannot play around with sex. The minute you decide that sex does not need to be in the bounds of a monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong union of a man and a woman before God. The minute you do that, you think, well, we'll give them fornication if they won't give us abortion. In other words, go ahead and fornicate and we'll give you the pill or use a condom. And then we won't have to deal with the conscience matter of our daughter having to have an abortion because she's not ready to get married. I mean, this stuff is all through the church. So when we look at homosexuality, I, I have said for, honestly, for 30 years and working against it first in the PCUSA and now just with normal conservative reform people instead of the main ones, I have said from the beginning, we decided that we were going to allow fornication conservatives. Then we decided we were going to not discipline adultery. Then we decided, you know, sure, some adultery got disciplined. You know, if you have somebody that's so gauche in the way he commits adultery or she commits adultery that the whole church is up in arms, well, then yes, you've got to do something, right? Uh, but we allowed fornication. We allowed adultery. We allowed unbiblical divorce and remarriage. And guess what? Then the liberals wanted homosexuality. We didn't have a leg to stand on. And that's the reason homosexuality and the acceptance of it and the repudiation of shame has shot through the conservative, reformed church, Baptist and Presbyterian right now. What Tim's saying really isn't radical. He just means sin begets sin. You, you build a golden calf, you end up reveling beneath it. You sleep with Bathsheba, you murder her husband. You eat the forbidden fruit, you end up lying to God about it and blaming it on your wife. Sin begets sin, begets sin, begets sin, begets sin, begets sin, begets sin. James 1.14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We all know that that's true on a personal level. You get to be a little older and you see how some of your friends from high school turned out, how one thing led to another, which ones of them are fools, which ones of them are righteous, which ones of them are lies and which are dead. And if you know the stories of Israel in the Old Testament, which the Apostle Paul says were given to us for an example, and you know your own culture and the people around you, then you know, well, what we submit to you is this. Sin begets sin for societies as well as individuals. Obviously, there are many factors in the rise of homosexual acceptance in our world today. Whole books could be written, and I'm sure they have been written about the parts that Hollywood and New York and Washington, D.C. have played. Yeah, I mean, many of the arbiters of culture in the 20th century were gay. That's just a fact. Many of them worked in ways that were subtle and maybe some ways that weren't so subtle to bring about a revolution in the way that people think. It's silly to argue that there's never been a homosexual agenda, for example, in movies or on TV. Yeah, especially these days with so many content creators taking like blatant pride in their propagandizing. I mean, just look up any interview on the subject with Ryan Murphy, the guy that did Glee in American Horror Story. But here's the thing. When everybody wants to share a post on Facebook about the gay liberal agenda or whatever, they're often missing the larger point that Tim was getting at. There's always going to be bail worshippers. There's always going to be people pushing a sinful agenda. That's nothing new. The real question is, what are we doing? What are the people of God doing? Obviously, this is not a podcast about, like, Plato's Republic. We don't have time for a lengthy discussion of who dictates societal morality. Is it the church or the state or the family or Holly Weird or whatever? But we do have one assertion to make, which we think is pretty obvious. And that assertion is that you don't get to the point we're at today without the church having dropped the ball. Which is to say without pastors and elders and parents having dropped the ball. Which is to say without you and I 
dropping the ball. When we look for the cause of homosexuality and its acceptance in society today, we can't just look out there. We have to look inside at ourselves, at our own hearts. And when you look at your own heart and the hearts of the people in your church, at all the little sins that you nourish, all the ways you think you can just put one little toe over the line, all the little monsters that you feed, is it really so surprising that now that the big monster is awake, a pastor like Tim would place the blame not on Hollywood, but on the church, on you and me. It's something for you to think about anyway, and something we'll be discussing further in the upcoming weeks. We've talked about how we got here. Now it's time to take a step back. If we woke up the monster, just what kind of monster is it? What is the Bible, like the whole Bible, not just a couple verses, actually say about homosexuality? The World We Made was written by Nathan Alberson and produced and executive produced by Nathan Alberson and Jacob Menzel. You can find more great content at warhornmedia.com or follow us on social media under at warhornmedia.com.